This was the week it was announced that movie director Spike Lee was working on a new project. Bearing in mind that it's also 2020, his next film will be a musical about the discovery of Viagra. It's based on an article in Esquire magazine entitled All Rise. You literally couldn't make it up. And this is Boggle Dogs. And straight away we're into dangerous territory, so let's sidestep any innuendo for now to say welcome to your safe space, your happy place. 30 minutes or so of fun and CPD. We're here to give you a virtual pat on the back and to say well done for keeping going during all the things that are going on as we take a sideways look at the medical media to consider what's going on in the world and learn something along the way. Boggle Docs is the podcast for GPs and other primary care professionals that takes the pulse of the nation by looking to the medical media and uses that information as a springboard to help you target your CPD. And all of this is aimed at giving us the heads up so that we might have an inkling of what might be on our patients' problem lists so that we know what we need to know. Please subscribe to and rate this podcast because apparently that's really important for all the algorithms in the world of podcasting. And this week I'm joined by GP um, James Thambaraja. Hi James, how are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my absolute pleasure. And and we should probably say that. So I I know about you. um, I've not met you face to face yet, but I look forward to that day. Um, I would say you're a Twitter friend. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) Um, And so I follow you on Twitter and and get to know what you've been up to. um, And we we both run. And so that's really nice to interact on that level as well. Um, And I noticed that you've actually recently had had some good news. Oh, yes. So thank you. Um, So I... Uh, I've just been made uh, vice chair of the RCGP Southwest Thames faculty. Uh, Fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's really, really good. And so what else do you like getting up to? Um, So I'm a full-time salaried GP um, uh, based in Southwest London. Um, I also do uh, St. John's Ambulance volunteer work, and I've been working at Lord's Cricket Ground and Wimbledon Tennis Championships. Uh, Sadly, not this year due to the pandemic, (laughs) but I do a lot of St. John's Ambulance kind of volunteer work, so that's big passion of mine i'm also interested in demoscopy um so i've been doing a lot more of that recently uh this year as well uh, yeah. so technically maybe a portfolio gp but uh, I, tr- I try and do the things that uh, excite me uh, and, and i find enjoyable so clearly you've got a clean slate you're not busy at all <laughs> <laughs> no. and on top of that i'm you know uh uh father of three children uh, and my wow. wife is a sister as well so we we try balance everything uh, that's quite a juggling act you're yeah. doing there Congratulations on that in yeah. itself. And I have to ask you, do you have um, people that, that tend to, around Wimbledon time, do you have people that kind of come back into your life and say, hi, James, how are you doing? <laughs> and uh, like, yes and no. I, I, I suppose <laughs> I, get, I get emails saying, oh, I'd love you to be there. Perhaps I can come and visit you. And I said, wow. quite busy. Uh, we, you know, we, uh, it's, it, it's, it's lovely. It's a real privilege to work there. But on any yeah. given day, we have about 30,000, 40,000 and people uh, walking around. We have three um, first aid centres, so there's a lot of patients to see. Um, but it's just a wonderful place just to be around, and um, yeah. So, and it's it's a great opportunity to teach as well because we have a lot of St John's. Because I w- work as a volunteer uh, GP for St John's at Wimbledon, mm. so we have a lot of cadets, we have a lot of medical students, we have nurses. 
so they really love um they really love teaching or they love to learn and so um and my gp colleagues and i and nursing colleagues and i we try and teach them as well so it's a great opportunity to teach them and these young kids who are you know just finishing school or just started uni they're just so appreciative of learning more so it's a great for me just to have that teaching bug as well while i'm doing absolutely yeah. what a great place to actually do some teaching i mean yeah, i've, I've never yeah. actually managed to get into wimbledon yeah. i've um I had a friend who was working in central London and he went with a friend of his and they queued up at the end of one day and yeah. got in on the return tickets. And, yeah. and I actually saw them on center court yeah, um, wow. on TV yeah. and the, like, you know, literally front, front row seat kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I thought a few years later, oh, I'm going to try that. Yeah. So it was, a, I was off on a Thursday and I got a friend and we went up to London already to queue up and get our tickets. Didn't get in. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was it, fun. It was a, it's a very special place. I think, um, if you if you go in the morning before play starts, you can just mill around and have coffee. And and I was able to go to Centre Court and just have coffee on the side um, because I've got my ID badge. And I got quite emotional because my grandfather was he loved my late grandfather loved tennis and he loved Wimbledon. And my my family background's from Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. And so when he met my grandmother for the first time, he had said, um, "I will only you know and they you know I'll only marry you if you if if you play tennis with me." And then, and then she said, um, well, you have to teach me tennis and then I'll marry you. And so that kind of it was a lovely relationship. We started through tennis. Oh. And I just keep on thinking whenever I'm at Wimbledon, I just think my grandfather would, would, would just get such a kick about me being here because we, we both bonded on our love of tennis, as did my father as well. And so just, just for me to be there is just a real privilege and a real honour. Um, and what a lovely story. What a lovely romantic story. Yes. <laughs> and please tell me that he did teach you to play tennis. Yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So, um, but it's tennis is all, my whole family loved tennis. <clears throat> my shed is, uh, <clears throat> my shed at my parents' house is full of VHS tapes of McEnroe and Ball oh, wow. and Lendl. So, yeah, we grew up watching tennis. And so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really special. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And in a minute, we're going to look at a, a news story that you has caught your eye. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to come back a bit later on and talk about hospital that was on BBC Two this week and about the issues that were thrown up in that. Yeah. Um, but before all of that, um, let's have a look at the news headlines. we start with the express diabetes type 2 the smell of your urine may indicate you're at risk of type 2 diabetes what it goes on to say is that diabetes is a pernicious condition because symptoms do not usually show up until it's serious the reason for this is consistently high blood sugar levels which can emit a certain odor when you pee now digging down into this basically what they're doing is they're talking um, about information from um, diabetes.co.uk and what they're talking about is that one telltale sign of high blood sugar levels and subsequently type 2 diabetes is a strong and bad smell of the urine and so what they're doing is they're quoting diabetes.co.uk and they say that smelly urine is a sign of a lower UTI um, and so basically they're saying that, that this could be a sign of having diabetes. Um, they're also saying that other um, telltale signs of a high blood sugar level um, include increased thirst and a dry mouth, um, needing to pee frequently, tiredness, blurred vision, unintentional weight loss, tummy pain, feeling or being sick, and breath that smells fruity. Obviously, um, that would be a real worry. Um, 
So basically, it then goes on to say that diabetes.co.uk um, would um, recommend having treatment for lower urinary tract infections um, with antibiotics. So suggesting you should see your doctor about that. There is no mention, I can't see it anyway, in this article about actually going to see your doctor if you are worried about having uh, diabetes. So you might have people who are having UTIs thinking they've got diabetes, so it might be something that they come in and talk to us about. Next up, um, it is The Times and Dr. Mark Porter, and he is talking about statins. Are those really side effects that you're feeling or just a nocebo? He's talking about a study from Imperial College um, where they compared um, adverse effects such as muscle aches in people taking a real statin versus a placebo and concluded that 90% of symptoms experienced by patients whilst taking statins were all present when they took placebo pills. And what he goes on to say is that um, because of this, patients may be missing out on the important benefits of taking a statin and he goes on to say that medicine modern medicine is partly to blame because we have to counsel our patients and often talk about side effects and and he um, says that one way to get around this is to maybe talk to them um, using the brand approach which we'll come back to in a moment and finally we have uh, the sun and they are talking about um basically warning signs are you drinking too much in lockdown take this test to find out if you've got an alcohol problem they've actually published um the audit questionnaire so the alcohol use disorders identification test and um, all 10 questions and then they give you um, what to do if you've actually scored um the different levels um what they are doing is they're quoting some information from the mental health charity with you. Um, There's been some new research published by them, which has revealed that more than 1.9 million over 50s say that lockdown restrictions have led them to start drinking earlier in the day, with 2.1 million saying that it has affected their mental health. So we may have patients coming to see us um, with their audit um, score already done, and they might want to talk to us about that. Um, And then finally, going back to the Mark Porter uh, story. So he was saying about how to talk to patients, and he says that he often uses the brand approach when discussing new treatment with patients and so the b is what are the benefits and then what are the risks the side effects that's the r what are the alternatives is the a and what if we do nothing is the n Um, and then he goes on to say that assuming the patient is keen to make all the necessary lifestyle changes um, and wants to try medication then you then he then focus mainly on the likely benefits of that medication Um, And he said it's important to be candid about side effects too, but troublesome ones are normally relatively uncommon. And so he says that he spells that out with his patients. So James, what kind of thought, have there been any stories in the headlines that have caught your eye recently? Uh, Yeah, Um, I I noted um, I'm a big tennis fan, as I mentioned earlier. And um, one article that kind of um, grabbed my attention was uh, the story about Nick Kyrgios. I don't know whether you saw this article as well. Uh, that was on the BBC Sport website, wasn't it? Yeah, and it, it kind of he kind of opened up about his battles, um, as he describes it, it, being in a lonely and dark place. Um, and he, he mentions that I felt no one wanted to know me as a person. These are all his quotes, uh, and he felt like he was spiraling out of control. And it, and essentially, it was interesting to see a, a tennis star and perhaps an outspoken tennis star, very effervescent character on the tour. Um, great character, uh, supremely talented tennis player, still very young, 25-year-old. Um, so whole career ahead of him. And just to see him being so open um, about his struggle with depression really um, shocked me, if I'm honest, because I didn't see it coming. Um, mm-hmm. He also talks about he's been seeing a psychologist um, since 2018, which I wasn't aware of, and he kind of describes it, saying that, yeah, he saw a psychologist to get on top of his mental health. Um 
And, you know, you know, I knew that Nick Kyrgios was quite a volatile player and he kind of has arguments with players and umpires. And I just thought that's just his character. But this is the first time that I've ever read anything about him struggling with depression. And I think it just kind of, I think it just hit a nerve with me, Nick, because I suppose, uh, you know, I'm a big sports nuts and sports fan. I love tennis. I love my cricket. I love football. I'm a big Tottenham fan. And I often see these sports stars or these athletes as kind of almost though, you know, like you know, the demigods that you see in Marvel films, you know, they're like Thor, yeah. you know, they kind of, you know, they're just um, like gladiators. And I just feel like, you know, they can do no wrong. And then suddenly it's, you see them, you know, being so honest about it. And I think my general takeaway was this is, um, you know, I felt sorry for him. If I'm mm. honest, I felt really sad that he was going through this, but also I was also, and, Please don't take this the wrong way. I was thankful that you were so honest about it. Um, so I, th- well, I think I think there's a lot to be said for that, yeah. and I think it sounds like you've you followed his career, so you kind of get a gauge of yeah. who you thought or how he was, and and he saying that he he's quite effervescent in in press conferences and stuff like that. Um, and so when when somebody like that then comes out and says that they are struggling with their mental health, then that's really powerful, and it's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that our patients will see and think, oh, actually maybe that could be me yeah. and they, they might come and talk to us about it. Um, and that's exactly the kind of thing that this podcast is aimed on, isn't it? It's trying to get people, try, trying to get GPs and, and primary care and healthcare professionals to work out what might be coming through their doors because of what people have seen and read about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just reminded me of kind of, you know, I was reading the latest kind of nice guide, guidance about depression, uh-huh. uh, which was kind of updated, I think, September of this year. Okay. Uh, and there's some factors There's kind of when you're talking about management of depression, there's the kind of new, new depression and ongoing depression. And if you go in the ongoing section, it talks about the factors which affect the course of severity of the depression. And they include um, the quality of your interpersonal relationships, um, living conditions and social isolation. That's one point. Um, employment or immigration status and availability of social support. And I just it just kind of struck me that it doesn't matter whether you're a top tennis star or, you know, whether you're a GP or whether, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Um, it affects everybody, uh, mental health issues. And I think it's important to realize, especially it made me feel that with my patients, I have to look into, you know, are my patients being supported just because they seem to have it all together and they're doing triathlons and they've got a great job. Does that, it doesn't mean that they're not depressed, you know, and it doesn't mean that they're struggling with things. And it made me think that I've got to pick up on cues. How's your, you know, and that's a great thing about GP. Uh, you know, one of my trainers used to say it's kind of a real pastoral kind of relationship with your patient in that you, it's not just one off 10 minutes. You kind of get to know patients a bit and you have that continuity of care. Um, and so for me, it made, this story made me realize, well, actually, maybe scratch beneath the surface. How's home? How's kind of your support system? Yes, you said your job is going really well, but how... How are things with your wife? How are things with your children? And these are things that we sometimes either forget to ask or we just don't have time to ask, which is, you know, with all the... Exactly. And, yeah. and also in the pandemic, it's, it's been more difficult if yeah. perhaps we've been doing those kind of consultations over the phone yes. um, or via video consultation. Um, and I think sometimes there is an argument for bringing people in, if we can do it safely, just to be able to see how they are. Mm. And, and often it's, it's about not, it's about when they answer a question, it's about what they don't say as well as what they do say yeah. um, that we need to be aware of too. Um, and I often think that, that a lot of these very perceived as glamorous um, jobs and glamorous roles 
um, you know, people that are in the public eye doing you know, sports and um, things on TV and film stars and stuff. A lot of those have got a, a huge element of of isolation mm. and and lack of social support um, because people are very much in a bubble mm. and and you can feel very lonely in that bubble. And, and people um, often, if they're I mean, high profile public figures, will often say that they don't feel that they, they're allowed to be depressed because mm. they haven't got money worries you know, all those kind of things. And and yet, you know, they do get depressed and they are allowed to be depressed. Um, and I think, you know, that can sometimes be um, translated into, into patients that, that, that we see that, that it's about, particularly during the pandemic, things like the social isolation can be, can, can be really difficult for them. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think you talk about isolation. I think that we have to be careful with us as a profession as well. You know, in mm-hmm. NHS, you know, sometimes especially with the pandemic, we're not seeing as many of our colleagues as we used to. Um, especially as a GP, it's, it's, you know, it's become more difficult because you're more isolated. And I'm just very thankful for some really good friends. Who, one of my good mates who lives in Wales, I'm, I won't embarrass him and tell his name, but he has been incredibly supportive. Um, I remember telling him over WhatsApp and just, I called him and saying, oh, you know, work has been really busy. And, and he sent me a card out the blue just saying Aww. keep on going James you're doing you know a great job and it meant the world to me Nick and without getting emotional about it it just felt you know it's so important you never know how one conversation can help someone you never know how uh, a message or a card or just a or, you know just a text message can change someone's day or week um, and I think you know it made me think just not just how we interact with our patients but how we interact with one another um, exactly you know, and, I, and I think in these times um, be kind is is so important absolutely excellent well thank you so much for that story that's really really good um, and so what we're going to do is come back and talk about hospital on BBC2 um, shortly but before that um, we're going to talk about daytime TV and we start with BBC Breakfast from Monday and we have Dr Nigat Arif and she was on there talking about how people are struggling with their mental health during lockdown, especially during the festivities at this time of year. And she signposted viewers to self-refer to the IAPT service. And what I'll do, I'll post the NHS search engine to find local services to you if you're listening in the UK and that'll be in the show notes as well. Uh, now, Judy um, was a patient who's featured in the documentary Hospital that we're talking about later. And she was on BBC Breakfast and she said that if one person has symptoms and goes to the doctor and it helps them that's why i did it so we'll be talking to james about that a little bit later on um, on tuesday we had good morning britain and dr chris smith the, the virologist was on and he gave a fantastic description of the science behind how the coronavirus vaccine will work i'm going to post a link to that video on the show notes is well worth having a look at and then on the same day on tuesday we had lorraine she was talking to Emmerdale actress Charlotte Bellamy about her upcoming storyline for her character Laurel, uh, where she finds out that the baby that she's carrying has a very high probability of having Down syndrome. And that's all coming up in Emmerdale in the coming weeks. Uh, on Wednesday, we had this morning uh, and we had um, Dr. Philippa Kay on. Now, she was talking about what your body is trying to tell you. They started off by going um, with the story whereby cortisol levels and earwax have been found to be uh, a possible marker for stress and for also for anxiety and depression. Um, She then went on to say um, how a botanic taste in the mouth, if it's new and there's nothing wrong with your teeth and there's no other medication, then it could be an indicator of kidney disease. So we might have people coming to us about that. 
If you want to say um, things like Arcus senalis, it was before the age of 60, a sign of cholesterol, a raised cholesterol. Um, she went on to talk about nail clubbing um, and what that could mean. Salt cravings were mentioned as a presentation of Addison's disease, polyuria, polydipsia as diabetes. Um, she went on to talk about supraclavicular nodes um, and how this can be a sign of a GI cancer. And then she said that if you're feeling cold um, and you've got dry skin and weight gain and the outer third of your eyebrow has been lost, this could be hypothyroidism. And also a beefsteak tongue can be a sign of B12 deficiency. So we have, might have patients who've seen that, that and, and they might well come and see us to talk about it. So I'm going to post the whole thing in the show notes as well. And then we had BBC Morning Live on Thursday with Dr. Zander Van Tuliken. And he had some lovely advice regarding spending time with people who are living with Alzheimer's. And he said, just because you're not having that normal interaction, there is a human there who can still experience love and warmth. And that was lovely to hear. And then um, finally, on Friday, we had um, on this morning, Dr. Poonam Krishan. And she was talking about seasonal affective disorder and talking about sad lamps and their place in therapy and saying that exposure to natural daylight is better. But if this isn't possible, then using a saddle lamp in the morning can be really helpful and she also advised that if people are struggling with low mood and hopelessness then they should see their gp so we may well have patients coming to see us talking about low mood hopelessness and also seasonal affective disorder so now james is back to talk about hospital which was on bbc2 this week um, and it's a documentary series and the the tagline is the story of the nhs in unprecedented times now james you've seen previous series of this haven't you yes and so i'd seen previous series um, at St Mary's Hospital and I think that was when um, dealing with bed crises and the junior doctor strike so that was uh, it's been a couple of years really since I've seen Hospital. Um, okay so, it was, it was, so this current series has moved to the Royal Free. Yes. Where you trained. Where I trained so it was very it was lovely really it's surreal just to see kind of drone shots of the place where I learned my first clinical lessons and uh where I had lunch and uh, the trees. I remember those trees there. And it's just very, it brought a lot, a lot of fond memories, a lot of good memories. And and they were obviously covering stuff which is really relevant now as well, because they, they'd they filmed this um, during the the first lockdown, hadn't they? Yes. And, and, and also just how they're preparing for the, you know, the second wave, as, as they said in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how they were looking after patients who were unfortunately waiting a long time for their treatments, which had been delayed by the pandemic. Yes. So, what do you what did you take away from what you saw about our pa- about patient care? Oh, I just first of all, I just thought what a wonderful hospital and how hard they're working. Um, mm-hmm. I just I was I was in awe by all the people working there, from the surgeons to the bed managers to the executives and. I just saw a real kind of collective team spirit in that hospital. So I was really kind of touched by that. Absolutely. And it, I think it really came across that they were all working as a team yeah. to do their best. And at the centre of all of that was was putting the patients first and getting the patients sorted out. And that was really lovely to see. And I, I suppose, like I was saying, I, I, I trained at the Royal Free, but I also grew up in um, in Enfield, which is basically Chase Farm was my local hospital. So I got quite emotional actually watching uh, this program because it yeah I felt like I had special I, ties to both hospitals totally and I did too because I I saw the shot of Chase Farm because I did my first house job at Chase Farm yeah, so I was yeah. a surgical house officer there um, and and at that point in time it was very much a, a very old building very 1950s it had an old style clock tower yeah, I remember it, um, yeah. I remember it. Yeah. <laughs> and and then and I thought it closed years ago clearly it hasn't and the the picture of the new hospital is phenomenal it looks like something out of a science fiction movie so that was really really quite quite an eye-opener for me to see that 
it's typical as soon as I move out of my hometown everything becomes brand new which is interesting yes. uh, <laughs> um, but I, I what really kind of um, hit home for me was just the the personal stories with the families um, yes. and the cancer treatment especially um, mm-hmm. I found that quite difficult to watch but also um, it, it was really powerful um, uh, you know how they kind of had interviews with the families and I've forgotten her name now. Was it Jenny? Her name? Judy. Yeah. And um, um, when they were interviewing her son, um, that really brought me to tears, really. Yes. Um, just, it, it really, uh, I suppose the take-home message for me is that, you know, each of these patients, we talk about the pandemic and we talk about the hospitals and the crises. Actually, there are families involved. And, and there was one line which I really um, really stuck with me and they said it's not just about the patient it's about the families affected by their treatment or the delay of treatment and it's not just the patient waiting it's the whole family waiting uh, and when I saw a son just kind of processing it you know live on screen I found that incredibly moving incredibly sad um, it was I thought he was really brave to go on camera and talk and yeah. clearly he was really struggling because I think he said he had anxiety as well yeah. and and it, it almost looked like he was trying to get himself out of a panic panic attack at one point. Um, but I think that that from our perspective, because we've obviously seen as GPs, we've, we've seen um, patients come back to us and say t- to us that they've had their treatment delayed. So for us, I think it was really useful um, to see it from the other side, to see all the work going on behind the scenes, to get these patients to theatre, to get them treated and get them sorted out and all the, all the struggles that secondary care have had to deal with. Mm. And I think that was really eye-opening. Um, but I think you're absolutely right in that, that, that we as as primary care um, healthcare professionals see the bigger picture in that we see the impact on the families as well yeah. and and it's how we then um, use that information to to, to help our patients because you know it made me think about you know maybe next time I will um, and again it's related if the pandemic will let us but you know finding a way to see to see patients i suppose this is about cancer care reviews and stuff as well isn't it mm. is to see see patients see their relatives and see how they're all coping with the whole thing and who needs the support yeah and i think it's just that the emotional connections that you talk about cancer care reviews and i think there's a danger sometimes uh, in primary care or even the hospital care that it can be a tick box exercise about kind of these targets and getting these beds and these operations, but actually there's a family involved. There's a person here um, and it should be, you know, we should, you know, we should be worried about the individual. Does that make sense? And not, not so much about the kind of the general statistics. And I think that's, yeah. and that really kind of, I'm really glad that I kind of saw, you know, watched this program because it enabled me to think about not only the struggles of the hospital, but also the struggles of the patients and their families um, and it made me realise that actually the hospitals, COVID or no COVID, it's there are you know the hospitals will have busy days. There will be it's it's a winter. We're coming up to a winter crisis now. So the same struggles that we have every year in primary mm-hmm. care and secondary care are still going to come along. And it's a matter of how we can all work together with the hospitals and primary care and GPs and how we can work together to try and um, battle the second wave and how we can kind of help our patients as they're waiting for treatment um and I, if exactly and i think it's what was really lovely was, was seeing them all pull together and i think um, you know, both of you and i are on on twitter and yeah. on we observe medical twitter yes um and sometimes the different specialities do go for each other yeah. um and i think 
the lesson from all of this is that actually we are all fighting the same cause. We're all trying to look out for our patients. Um, and I mean, the, the other um, person they focused on was the university lecturer, um, Sabolch, yeah, and absolutely. he was due to have surgery. Um, I think it was bowel cancer surgery as well. Um, and that was um, on the first day of lockdown yeah. and it was postponed because of what happened. And basically the, the, it made the point that in the time that he'd been waiting for his postponed surgery, he'd developed liver mets. Yeah. Um, so it spreads. And I think, you know, that was really, really sad and really difficult to watch. And the impact on him and his, and his family, um, as we've been talking about is, is phenomenal. And, and we shouldn't forget that that impact is so huge. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think, it's, it's good that with the second wave they're planning to keep um services going but it's going to be difficult for them to do that and and what really struck me was how close some of those operations came to being cancelled yes. literally with minutes to go the patient was there and ready to and and they would have been cancelled for perfectly legitimate reasons as well yeah um, and, and it, it made me realize how lucky our patients are when they do get the surgery done because yeah. there are so many different factors that come into play to get them there and get them treated yeah. Um, absolutely. I think uh, one of my good friends, she's an ENT surgeon in uh, Glasgow. And I, I remember kind of a couple of months ago, she was saying that she was really struggling to tell her patients that they would have to wait four months or five months for elective procedures. Um, and so it's, it's, it's heartbreaking, really, uh, as you say, Nick, it's heartbreaking to see these delays and, and to actually see it uh, on this program uh, was a real eye opener for me because sometimes you, you know, I think I needed to be reminded that the, that this is tra- this is tragic and this is happening um, and we're uh, everyone's doing their best but you know when when those three specialties were pretty much kind of I don't want to say arguing but they were kind of tussling who can get the theatre um, you just realise that you know spaces are limited and I found it very interesting how they were um, the private hospitals and the contracts and how that you know the politics about that was very interesting to me um you know uh and all these things that you don't really think about but these trusts have to think about financing and contracts to private hospitals and then i was very saddened to hear that you know the you know they weren't being funded for the second wave for kind of getting extra funding and there was like a 36 million pound shortfall uh, yes. in preparation and i just thought wow how is this happening in this country yeah you know it felt like I remember watching that and thinking, wow, you know, this doesn't feel like the time to pull the plug on that, that funding stream. Um, I, but, I, you know, and I just, yeah. and obviously there's much, you know, there's smarter people than me that are making these decisions. But I just, as soon as they said that 36 billion pounds shortfall, I, you know, I'm from that area. You know, I'm from yeah. you know, Enfield and Chase Farm. And I'm just thinking about people in my hometown who won't get their operation. <laughs> just getting emotional just talking about that. Um mm-hmm people in my hometown who won't get that operation uh because there's not enough money to send them to that hospital sorry um no not at all don't um, apologize you know and i just think it's 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 so unfair but maybe it's just unavoidable at this moment in time and that tells you the impact of this pandemic um you know and i and i hope that you know hopefully that shortfall will be kind of um dealt with and hopefully the government will come in um, you know as we as the winter comes in because uh, you know you know what we don't want to happen is it to get worse 
Exactly. And I think what we can do is, as, as people that work in primary care is to be ready for our patients when they come to us with worrying symptoms. And it might be that because of the pandemic, they're going to present with stuff that's either a bit later or more advanced than we normally expect. Um, and there's a lot in the press and on the media at the moment about almost turning this tap on again. Um, we've, we've been open all along, but perhaps that message is, has not got through. Uh, and so therefore, there's all these messages coming through um, that we are open in primary care. We are here and we are ready. Um, and there's been um, stories, um, the podcast last week, there were about three stories about different cancer presentations in the press. There was esophageal cancer, there was male breast cancer, mm. um, a few others as well. And, and so our patients are being told and being fed this information about warning signs for cancer. Yeah. Um, so they need to be able to act on those and come to see us. Um, because often um, patients worry about um, perhaps this perception they might be wasting a doctor's time. Yeah. Um, and so, um, we, you know, we just need to be ready for that and reassure them, don't we? Um, and, and, and refer on and, and hope that secondary care can do, do their part of the, the process as well. I, and yeah, and it's interesting because it's a vicious circle because there was that um, that segment in the program where um, I think a, a, a gentleman had, had come in with a heart attack, but he had not attended his outpatient appointments um, regarding his cardiac issues because he was worried about going to hospital um, because of COVID. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is that we're seeing a lot of patients who have been putting off things for several months. So we also have that issue to deal with as well, um, where patients are not going to hospital or they're shielding and they're missing out appointments. Um, and so it, it, it becomes at some point, it becomes um, uh, very difficult to manage really. And on top of that, we'll have the normal winter stuff that we normally deal with every year, which is uh, still a struggle. And I think it's interesting to see, I remember as a junior doctor, the, one of my best friends to have was the bed manager because, you know, if you're taking referrals, you need to know what, what beds you were having. And, um, you know, you know, working in busy hospitals like I did during my training, um, you know, unfortunately, I was, you know, a junior doctor during the kind of junior, you know, the junior doctor strikes. Um, yeah. And so there was lots of bed issues and bed crisis and staff shortages. And, and so it made me realize the, the difficulty of, having beds and having ITU beds and having hospital beds. So actual physical beds that patients can come in and stay in hospital. And I think during this pandemic, we're going to see it become more kind of, um, I, I suppose more problematic because we're going to have winter pressures as well um, on the, on the bed situation. So yeah, that, kind of, that really kind of struck a chord with me actually, because it kind of reminded me of my time as a junior doctor trying to admit patients and not, not having enough beds. Exactly. And and I think, you know, what we, we can all agree on is the fact that, that it seems, having watched this, that everybody in the NHS is doing their best for their patients in very, very difficult circumstances. Um, and so, you know, long may that continue for all of us. But also we do need to think about our own self-care too um, and, and, you know, make sure that we are looking after ourselves and our colleagues and our friends. Mm. Um, so thank you so much, James, for talking about hospital on BBC Two. Thank you. It was, it was, thank you. It was, a, it, was, it was a very eye-opening programme. It was, wasn't it? And thank you so much for coming on Boggle Docs. And we'd love to have you back on again in the future because I could talk to you for 
hours about all this kind of stuff. Likewise, likewise. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this experience. That's an absolute pleasure. You take care, James. Thank you. Take care. Bye. And what I'll do uh, in the show notes, I'll put a link to the BJGP article, which identifies recurrent themes in delayed cancer diagnosis from 2017. And also the suspected cancer recognition and referral guidelines from NICE from 2015 as well. Uh, And because it was relevant, I will also put a link to the NHS Practitioner Health website. Um, The NHS Practitioner Health, it's a free confidential service for doctors and dentists across England with mental health and addiction problems who are working or looking to return to clinical practice. Um, Now, if you are having a crisis, um, then you can um, you can text NHS PH. That's if you are accessing the NHS um, Practitioner Health uh, service. So that's NHS PH to 85258. Um, if you are not um, accessing the, the NHS Practitioner um, Health Service, then this is an extension of Shout 85258, which is also there 24-7. And so if you just text Shout 85258 um, on, from your mobile phone, then you can um, speak to somebody that will be able to offer you some help. Um, so that is it for another week. I wonder which of the things that we, we've been talking about will our patients come to see us about? So many things. I mean, will it be that they are worried that they've got diabetes because they've got uh, a UTI? And could it be they want to give statins another go? Um, how about um, their drinking? Are they worried about their drinking? So all those things. Um, I'm, as I said, I've posted lots of things on the show notes. So we've got Dr. Chris Smith, the virologist. It's really worth having a look at his explanation of the, the COVID vaccine. That's on there too. Um, and um, as I said, there's also um, all the different bits and pieces from daytime TV and all those different um, symptoms and signs from this morning from um, that which they were talking about, including the outer third of the eyebrow, um, if it's related, um, along with things like feeling sort of maybe a bit low um, dry skin, putting on weight. Um, constipation all that kind of stuff could that be um, hypothyroidism presenting Um, so anyway that's it for another week thanks for listening Um, my name is Nick Kendrew um, and you can find me on Twitter at Nick Kendrew that's N-I-K-K-E-N-D-R-E-W and also Boggle Docs is on Instagram and Twitter at Boggle Docs and we will be back in another week with some more Boggle Docs until then look after yourselves keep safe and well um, and we'll see you next week take care bye bye